Hey, you're listening to Back Channel Radio. I'm producer Suzanne Hogan. If you're joining us for the first time, stop right here and go back to Boathouse 101. These episodes are meant to be heard in order. And if you've been listening and liking this so far, do us a favor and rate this podcast and write a review and share it with someone who you know who might enjoy it. Word of mouth really does a whole lot of good, so it would really help us out. You can also financially support this podcast. Every bit adds up. Go to backchannelradio.org. And a special thanks to the support from the Minnesota Marine Art Museum in Winona, Minnesota, a place that promotes meaningful experiences by exploring our ongoing and historic relationship with water. From historic works of art to some of today's most ambitious and celebrated artists. The museum produces and presents an annual portfolio of exhibitions and programs guided around a single theme, like the flora and fauna of the mysterious underwater world. Find out more at mmam.org. This is Back Channel Radio, a Wolf Spider Island story. Stories from beyond the mainstream. I'm Gina Favano. Back in 1981, A different boathouse community, this one known colloquially as Frog Slough, was under threat of eviction. Frog Slough is located upriver from Latch Island by a couple of miles. It's small. The handful of boathouses still there are tethered to a berm adjacent to the river road. Today, along with the frogs, it's inhabited by just a couple of boathouses, some tidy and kept up, some in disrepair. But in the 80s, when this story takes place, it was a thriving, floating neighborhood, which it had been for decades. Frog Slough was known as a long-standing, or floating, shantytown. What made the situation in the early 80s at Frog Slough different from the one on Latch Island was that the land adjacent to Frog Slough was owned, some by the Winona Port Authority and some of it by a private landowner. So even though the boathouses were in the water and not on dry land, the people living there were technically squatting. What had prompted them to finally want to give the boathouses their walking papers was a prospect for the slough to be used as a mooring area for barges, which presented its own issues, mainly environmental ones, like the potential for destroying the shoreline and disturbing wildlife. So the boathouses on Latch Island were left to wonder, if eviction could be threatened at Frog Slough, who was to say it couldn't happen down on Latch Island? So the whole floating home community responded in maybe the best way possible by inviting the town to a party. Frog Slough Heritage Days. (laughs) <laughs> in 81. Their slogan, don't let frog slew croak. Here's Rupke, our Latch Island historian again. What happens during, during frog slew heritage days? You know, they had Polish heritage days in Winona, so we had frog slew heritage days. So it was a big party over in frog slew, and the they were going to give a, an award to whoever came with the biggest frog. And that day... <laughs> That day, looking out, my boathouse was turned the other way. I saw a water snake on the shore eating a frog. And the frog was upside down, being taken in uh, feet first. And so it, it would grab the snake like this, you know, and, uh, and, and it, would, it would wiggle and then it would rest. And as soon as it rested, the frog, the snake would go and get it another eighth of an inch in, you know. It was like, so I said, well, I could go out and rescue the frog, but why favor the frog over the snake? You know, the snake's got to eat too. So I let the fro- snake eat the frog, went and grabbed the snake, and brought the snake to Frog Slough Heritage Day. <laughs> and I was the only one that had a frog. 
I won the prize because <laughs> I could show oh, that the frog was inside the snake. You know, it was a big bulge there. So what, wait, what was the prize? I don't even remember what the prize was. It was just a. Um, it was just the, the yeah. title, the title yeah. that was important. Bringing a snake with a frog inside it to a largest frog contest is, in essence, the story of a loophole, using the system to figure out a way to win. And John wasn't the only person creating innovative ways to bend the rules. The boathouses in Frog Slough were eventually allowed to continue to exist. A few of them remain there to this day. There are also some barges moored nearby. This episode is all about the great lengths people went through to get to stay on the water. Even though Latch Island is owned by the city of Winona, it was and is in many ways a place unto itself. The only boathouse community on the Mississippi where people still live year-round. You have to remember most modern conveniences are traded to live here, especially on the lower island, where you can't simply drive a car up to your place unless the water's frozen over. Back in those early days, the community was on their own, living out here and people found their own ways to do things. There was no way for mail delivery or fire and rescue to make it out to the individual boathouses, and the early boathousers were developing creative ways to carve out a life, their own systems. And then they were living under the threat of eviction, but luckily they loved loopholes. This episode we're calling Lips. It's about lines of communication, how important they are in the here and now, and in the preservation of our stories. And how this particular story about loopholes and river rat resilience almost sunk to the bottom of the Mississippi River. You, you could go to Lips and um, see if you had any messages. Or and what did Lips stand for? It was an acronym. Latch Island Phone and Power Service, <laughs> L-I-P-P-S. Lips, or Latch Island Phone and Power Service was a small shack that housed the islander's shared source of power and became the center point of communication. It was moored to the end of a communal dock used by islanders to boat to and from the parking lot. It was essentially a floating box painted baby blue and hot pink with neon green trim and had a giant pair of floating red lips that had been painted on it by longtime boathouser Leslie Eaton. We'll hear more about her next episode. It had a bulletin board, a calendar, in the early days, it functioned as a shared phone booth and a power source for a lot of the island residents. For me, uh, you know, I, that was a place to charge my batteries. So you could go down there and put your battery, and we had battery two, a couple battery chargers there, and you could just connect it in. And, like car batteries, that size? Uh, well, not car batteries, but um, marine batteries that, oh, okay. that everybody has in their boathouses now to run an alternative to running when the generators are running, you know. It, I mean, I didn't have a generator here for the first 10 years, so I had one little marine battery. Eventually, Lips also became a library for all the Latch Island files that had been meticulously organized by John Rupke over the course of decades. A few years ago, the ancient plywood roof of Lips started leaking, and the files were getting wet. Some were even disintegrating, it was inside Lips where I first learned about John's chronicling of the island's history and began to understand the importance of making sure this story was recorded. Lips is where the catalyst for this whole project took place. It was really nice to have a place to, on the island to have your phone and to have your uh, power source. Um, to, um, and, and Digital Don kind of... He was, he lived right next to it, so he was kind of, he helped us with the power thing. Digital Don was another early inhabitant of the boathouse scene in the late 70s and early 80s. 
He was known for his ability to help the islanders solve necessary technical solutions to problems like creating power and charging batteries. Inside Lips was the one and only phone for the island, but also the only answering machine that was shared. Every once in a while I'd pick up the phone and it would go beep, 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 beep. And I thought, well, that's irritating. Why is it going beep, 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 beep? You know, and sometimes it wouldn't do that. Sometimes it'd pick up, it would just beep, beep, you know. And it was like, oh, anyway, uh, <laughs> finally somebody said, well, that beep, 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 beep means, means there's a message. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. <laughs> and, uh, it could have been Ed McMahon. You, you'll never know. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Yeah. Back during that high point of the community in the 80s, Lips had multiple uses. But by the time I arrived in 2013, it had become functionally obsolete. I saw it more as an artifact than anything else, a relic of a not-so-distant era. It was inviting, but also mysterious, like it had magical properties. As I mentioned in the last episode, when John moved onto the island in the late 70s, there were already a fair amount of boathouses being inhabited, and it's hard to get an actual count. Less than 50. Around the same time, the city started to take issue with them. Or more accurately, the city manager who wasn't from Winona and perhaps didn't fully understand the cultural significance of this floating community. The Islanders' problems with the city actually started around that same time when the city of Winona was awarded a Minnesota state grant to pay for half of the purchase of Latch Island. Before that, most of it had been owned by the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad, as we touched on in episode one. So what happened was, Winona bought Latch Island under the stipulation that it be used as a public park where people could connect with the water, fish, enjoy nature. It's been speculated that perhaps the city manager alerted the Army Corps of Engineers to the boathouse situation in his quest to oust the boathouses. And it's been suggested, both on and off the record, that the boathouses only became an issue when the grant was awarded for the city to purchase the island. But basically, they didn't want squatters there. Like a lot of histories, though, some of the context is murky. What is certain is that none of the imposing forces counted on the boathouse community having so much support from some of the townspeople, but more substantially from the homesteaders and intentional communities in the neighboring Wiscoy Valley. These people, who were mostly part of the underground subcultures, were working out how to live communally and establish unconventional living scenarios of their own. They shared a similar ethos to the boathousers, and when the outside pressure started mounting, they showed up for them en masse at the city council meetings. But there was also another key figure who was helping from the inside. We tried to stay under the radar over here, you know. But the thing we had our ace in the hole was that Judge Shaleen was living here. And his on little, the island? Was on, on the upper island. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, he was living on. It was, this was all Latch Island, upper Latch, lower Latch. And um, so that was our ace in the hole. And we kept saying, if they want to get rid of us, they're going to have to go for the judge first. The late Judge Dennis Shaleen also authored multiple books on criminal law. He toured throughout the U.S. and Canada lecturing on his quote-unquote new concepts of sentencing. Here he is being interviewed on a local TV show in the 1980s. One day I had a guy who came into court and I fined him $100. The audio isn't the best, but basically this guy who was fined $100 didn't really understand who Judge Shaleen was and who he was talking to. And he says, Judge, if I have to pay that kind of money, he says, I'm going to be so broke I have to down one of them shacks on the river. Well, everybody started laughing in court because they know the judge lives on a shack in the river. And so he didn't know what was so funny. He left and I don't think he knew until somebody told him later on that that was the wrong thing to say to the wrong person. <laughs> 
Not only was Judge Shaleen a key player in securing the legal rights of the boathouse colony, which I'll go into later, but in the early 70s, he began the nation's first program sentencing nonviolent offenders to community service instead of jail time. Considered controversial and without legal precedent, it's now commonplace both nationally and internationally. Swamp water justice, he called it. Here he is again being interviewed by news anchor Tom Snyder. What kinds of people come before you? How do you see them? Uh, I see them as you and I, the same kind of people that perhaps make mistakes in life. You know, uh, it's amazing how uh, the juvenile delinquent's always that kid down the end of the block, you know. He's never our kid. Right. But everybody's got to be somebody's kid. <laughs> and uh, consequently, uh, that's how I look at him. Judge Shaleen held a holistic, evolved approach to dealing out sentences which at the time made him a pioneer advocate for using restitution as a form of justice, although he was quick to point out that other cultures have long practiced this philosophy. Shaleen had a three-tiered system of dealing with nonviolent offenders. First, identify the victim. If the victim is a person, then he'd have the offender pay them back, either by working for them or some other way to make a right, what we essentially now know as community service. If there were no people that had been victimized by the crime, then the perpetrator would be obliged to do something constructive for the community. Finally, the third element to his approach was for the offender to do something positive for themselves, like getting their GED. It's trouble our whole court system and judicial system has got itself so tied down in precedent. So a guy comes to court now, he's probably the same 100 years ago. Maybe a little harder, a little lighter, depends upon what, but his, uh, the way he's treated in the courts are, haven't changed lawyers and the court system are great for worshiping the past and I think we got to change it and make our court system fit America today and not not uh, 100 years ago America's changed the courts got to change Judge Shaleen's stance on crime when reading back through some of his essays feels complicated it should be noted that the judge wasn't soft on crime as some would call it where his ideas were radical was when it came to nonviolent sentencing, thinking outside the box like a lot of the other boathousers. It's, it's pretty hard to be completely law-abiding these days, and maybe that's because we have too many laws. And do you take that into consideration sometimes? Well, I think you have to. Uh, we're all human, we all make mistakes. John Rupke often references the fact that Judge Shaleen's living on the island was a key part of the whole story. First, it's important to understand everything the boathousers were up against. The tensions within the community and outside of it were building. It was complicated. Here's John again. We wanted to stay under the radar. We didn't want any, you know, we didn't publicize that we were living here. We didn't publicize anything. And uh, it kind of got over to the city council that, um, well, there are a lot of boathouses come over here, you know, and some people are building, boat, they're, they're building their places too. The city didn't like that the boathouse community was growing and that essentially these people weren't being regulated. Living off-grid without city power or plumbing services, city trash pickup, phone lines besides lips, basically they weren't paying into the normal city systems and services. It wasn't a marina and couldn't be handled like one. But it's not like they weren't paying anything into the city. Boathouse residents were paying a mooring fee to cover their shoreline access, kind of like property taxes but there was still no convenient way to recognize a community quite like this. One tactic the city council used to put pressure on them was proposing to significantly raise the mooring fee that gets paid to the city. I, I do recall everybody saying, well, well that's a 666% raise. <laughs> <laughs> what had been a cheap place to live was becoming potentially expensive and complicated. 
exactly what the early Boathousers were trying to avoid. So we had to build a case that we had a right to live here. The city manager that had been brought in was working hard to oust the Boathouses, citing violations of potential concerns like sanitation, which, given how much they cared about the river, the Boathousers especially took umbrage to. But some citizens in town agreed with him. Do we really want people living like this, you know, in Monona? And so he set up his plan to get rid of the habitable boathouses. So the, it was really the city manager. But we had a lot of support among the local people and the politicians. And um, so he was battling that aspect of it. And it wasn't just the city. Federal authorities were also coming after them. The Army Corps of Engineers set December 31st, 1979 as a deadline to get rid of all of habitable boathouses. So if you'll recall from earlier, the city of Winona officially purchased Latch Island in the late 70s from a grant they got from the state of Minnesota. However, no provision had been made within the agreement as to what, if anything, should happen with the boathouses. And at that point, there were quite a few of them. Later that same year, the Army Corps of Engineers got an order from the Pentagon to remove habitable boathouses from federal land by December 31st, 1979, as John stated earlier. But Latch Island technically was no longer federal land. It had become an island that was owned by the city. Finally, we got to the situation with the Army Corps of Engineers where it was, well, if the city, if the city is okay with you, then we'll leave you alone. And so then we went with the city after the city went after us. John and other boathousers believed they had a right to live here. Reggie McLeod, the journalist we heard from in episode one, was covering this whole conflict as it was unfolding in real time and offered me some context. Yeah, it was a precedent, really. He's also the creator and editor of Big River Magazine. Around the time the issues with the boathouses were unfolding, he was writing for the local newspapers. His reporting was by and large unbiased, but he also had a reference for the cultural importance of boathouses. And a lot of the people in Winona, you know, who is old, you know, people older than I, uh, remember growing up when there were more people living along the river. I think the issue, you know, they slowly disappeared everywhere else. This is the last year-round boathouse community on the river that I know about. And there's a reason why there's only one left, why this one got to exist while others were evicted. In part because of their unique set of circumstances, but mostly because of the community's dogged convictions. They weren't calling them squatters, they were calling them hippies, you know. Not all of the hippies were on the same page about how the outside pressure from authority should be addressed. Some of those early islanders had the vision for the future, of finding a sustainable solution for a permanent home, while others saw it more as a temporary, transient place to dwell for the time being. Still others were recluses who didn't want any outside force to tell them what to do or how to live. And the people living up at Frog Slough were feeling similarly. Frog Slough, the place I talked about at the very beginning of this episode, was also connected to the threats facing Latch Island. You know, one of the things that the city tried to claim was that the boathouses in Frog Slough were deteriorating the levee. Uh, uh, you know, and in a big flood, the weakened levee could wash out and flood the town. We said, well, we'd like to see a letter from the... Um, Army Corps of Engineers that says that their levee can't stand foot traffic on it. So if you can get that, then we'll, um, well, of course, that was something the Army Corps of Engineers wasn't, go wasn't going to write. As I mentioned earlier, Frog Slough never did officially get evicted. Again, it's unclear as to exactly why. 
It could have something to do with the previously dead-end road that lay just above it getting developed into a bustling two-lane thoroughfare that made people eventually move on. There's another story that resurfaces every now and again. It's pretty much local lore and can't really be verified, but basically, the out-of-state dwelling landowner comes back to town demanding that the boathouses be removed. So the boathousers simply untie their structures from the shore and anchor out in the river, which are public waterways, and then wait for him to leave, which he does. But like I said, none of these details are very clear. What is clear are the creative loopholes and the support of some of the surrounding community helped make it possible for the Latch Island boathouses to stay. But it wasn't an easy fight. We figured, well, first they get rid of Frog Flu, then they get rid of Latch Island. Reggie McLeod was present for some of the public meetings in that era, and he confirms that both the Frog Slu and Latch Island attacks involved a confusing web of bureaucracy. It was enormously complicated. The situation for Latch Island involved various different types of government agencies coming after the boathouses. There was the city manager, the Army Corps of Engineers, the city council, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and it was of concern to both the Minnesota and the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, or the DNR, as we will call them sometimes. So there were a lot of different authorities that had control. The attack on the boathouse lifestyle had been coming down even before Frog Slough and the situation on Latch Island. Sometime in the early 1980s, the Wisconsin DNR evicted a different boathouse community, known by some of the locals as Sibulski Slough. And some of those displaced boathouses ended up moving to Latch Island because it existed in this legal gray area and it wasn't federally owned. The city's grant to buy the island added another layer of complication. There had the uh, deed, which, which reserves the whole island for public use, and it can't be sold. Remember, the island was bought under the condition that it get used as a public park, which it's still used for today, unless it's flooded. The city briefly considered the possibility of developing the lower portion of the island, which was often referred to as primitive wilderness, into a more accessible space, but that would have involved bulldozing a road and cutting down some of the huge cottonwood trees whose root systems are basically helping to hold the whole island together. Once they realized the amount of maintenance it would have required and the frequency of flooding, that idea was abandoned. Uh, you, the boathouses were using space that were part of a public park. So they were saying, well, individuals are, are using space that really is open to the public. And so there was a little bit of tension with that. In 1985, the Minnesota Department of Energy and Economic Development wrote a letter to the Winona city manager, informing him that the mooring of private boathouses to the shore violated the specified use of the island. And this tension went beyond just red tape and bureaucracy. It was a, like a culture war thing. It kind of offended their sensibilities that people could live so cheaply. Meanwhile, boathousers continued to exist in their off-the-grid counterculture, organizing events like Frog Slough Heritage Days, there were big bonfires celebrating the cycles of the moon. More artists lived on the island in those days, spending their time working on weavings, poetry, and paintings. During that time period, the boathousers hosted lots of gatherings and potlucks that attracted other members from surrounding countercultures, which was great because it helped attract more attention to their cause. John remembers fondly some of the big parties they'd throw around the beginning of spring when the ice chunks would flow downriver. They'd invite people from neighboring Wiscoy Valley. Like April 1st used to be surfing day, it was surf, surf, <laughs> and uh, the people from Wasquai Valley would come over, we'd have a big party on that around. You'd surf the, ice, right? Hmm? You'd surf ice, right? So, yeah, we, sometimes <laughs> the ice would be flowing down, so we'd surf the ice. 
When the threat of eviction came to Latch Island, a lot of those same people were ready to stand up for the boathouses. I can remember days when like 100 people would show up at the city council meeting, yeah. packed in the place. Boathouse people, Wiscoy Valley people, people in town who also were lifestyle, uh, alternative lifestyle people. John remembers city council meetings that were packed to the rafters with people that had various affinities for the boathouses. But over time, it became harder for the city to clearly communicate with boathouse residents because they were all coming to these meetings as individuals with different ideas and objectives. So it was confusing. People on both sides recognized the need for some type of organization to be created so there could be a more unified voice. And so the Winona Boathouse Association was created. That was the whole idea behind um, forming the Winona Boathouse Association so they could deal with one person. Creating a singular, informal group to represent the residents' needs and rights sounds simple enough, but not everybody was on board with how formal the organization should become. Like a lot of groups, there were different factions and different ideas for what life on the island should look like. That word, um, incorporation, sounded pretty, you know, sort of intimidating and like something you wouldn't want to do, you know. Trudy Balcom used to own a boathouse on Lower Latch Island. Around this time, she had just gotten her master's in folklore and museum studies, and eventually she would go on to become a writer for Big River magazine. She lived on the island in both full-time and part-time stints until the mid-90s. She now lives in the Southwest. This went back and forth at numerous meetings. Should we incorporate? Should we not? And that's when people kind of started breaking up into these camps, and it got pretty bitter. Um, the, the more substantive argument against it was does the DNR actually have any kind of legal standing to regulate boathouses? So talking to Trudy, I got the impression that she saw incorporation as in creating a boathouse organization that would function as a nonprofit as a logical next step, a path forward to preserve the way of life they had grown to love, which makes sense. It was a way for the situation to remain sustainable and to have some better legal standing when state and federal issues came up. But not everybody wanted that, including John. Some of the boathousers saw becoming incorporated as conceding too much. The beginning of the end, the spirit, the ethos of what the place was founded upon. That's where things started to sort of crumble, you know, as far as people breaking into camps of what we, you know, some people were very much against incorporation and, and didn't think it was necessary and didn't think it had any value and didn't like the sound of it. The community of people living in boathouses shared lots of common values, most of them centered around environmental stewardship and living simply. But there were differences too, of course. And the differences seemed to inform how they felt about formalizing the community they had worked so hard to establish. It seems inevitable, even in the tiniest communities, that we as humans find ways to form camps, ways to set ourselves apart. In this case, and I'm generalizing here, the people living in the upper part of the island and people living in the lower part of the island started to disagree. The hardest part of incorporation was simply um, getting people on board to do it. So the Winona Boathouse Association, or the WBA as it will sometimes be called going forward, was informally functioning as a collective. But then there was this additional push to become incorporated. Like with any new organization, there were a lot of changes happening in a relatively short amount of time. What was the best reason that they had for being against incorporation? I think it was primarily that they just didn't like it, that it was, it was too mainstream. Too mainstream, or in this case, main channel. 
which was the opposite of what the boathousers living on the back channel, especially on the lower part of the island, were going for. People who settled on Lower Latch, aka Wolf Spider, tended to be more individualistic, more anti-authoritarian, which we'll get into next episode. Upper and Lower Latch are separated by a tiny stream bed, and there's a small footbridge that spans it. I'm telling you this because conflict always makes for a good story, but here, let's take a minute to focus on the things that can connect us. And here on the island, it's this footbridge. Here's John reciting a poem that he wrote that pays homage to the Lower Latch Island footbridge. Okay, this is uh, the Lower Latch Island Declaration of Independence. Subtitled, Ode to the Lower Latch Island Footbridge. We built the bridge that the police won't cross. It spans the cut that stopped the phone company. Yet each day it allows to pass, like smoke through a screen, the children and dogs and adults who know its secrets. The city boathouse inspector won't cross it either. We built the perfect bridge. It is two opposing gangplanks to a river house porch that rises and falls on six barrels in double two by four barrel racks exactly 16 inches apart. It focuses the attention of our visitors on the question of balance and prepares them to approach our homes. A steel cable passes through two metal rings attached to the upstream side and holds the bridge to trees on opposite banks. Vines creep along the cable, reaching out to greet approaching friends. A single downstream rope keeps it from twisting in the current. Motorcycles can't cross it. Vroom, vroom, vroom. It rises and falls in a free-swinging arc. It's fun to cross. Lots of times I play games on it. The city litter pickers don't cross it either, so our trail is litter-free. It is a proper bridge to begin the journey down the Lower Latch Island Trail through the heart of the Lower Latch Island primitive wilderness area. We built the perfect bridge. By John Rupke, Chief Gardener of the Lower Latch Island Trail, July 4th, 1981. The footbridge still remains, though it's had to be rebuilt more than once like everything around here. But in the summer of 2019, decades after the whole legal ordeal, another iconic structure was torn down. The Latch Island Phone and Power Service, or LIPS, the island phone booth. It had fallen into disrepair. The walls and roof were moldy and soft. And it was within these walls that John's documents and scrapbooks of this time lived in the tiny shared library. I was sad to see it go, but what made it bittersweet was what it represented. It was like a shrine to that time of original excitement and ingenuity. The ingenuity still exists, but it's bound to look a little different. It's a new era, and there's another generation of river rats who are eager to take up the mantle, or in my case, the documents. The spirit of the subculture is alive and well, but who knows what shape it will take as new threats continue to loom. Next time on Back Channel Radio, River Rats, 
The fact that the judge was living in a boathouse gave us time for a lot of other people to start living in boathouses. You know, because of the nature of the kind of people uh, that live in boathouses, you know, they're kind of anti-establishment, anti-authoritarian. Would you call it an obsession with aliens? Or what's um, your it was, it was an obsession, yeah. yeah, fascination. And I'm still very into aliens, but now I've kind of come, I've just accepted them into the larger reality. Why don't we have cream corn wrestling? Back Channel Radio is researched and written by me, Gina Favano, and edited and mixed by producer Suzanne Hogan. Grace Ambrose designed our website, backchannelradio.org, where you can find photos and bonus material. It's also where you can donate to the project. Every bit helps. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. We heard audio from the television show Tomorrow, starring Tom Snyder, courtesy of NBC, and Changing Channels from 1978, courtesy of University Community Video. Special thanks to Will Shaleen, Trudy Balcom, and Reggie McLeod. Huge thanks to the original Wolf Spider Islanders and everyone who loves this place. And thanks to the Southeastern Minnesota Arts Council, the John Latch Board, the Awesome Foundation, and individual donors on Patreon. Back Channel Radio podcast episodes and bonus content are made possible in part by support from the Minnesota Marine Art Museum, a place committed to ecological stewardship and justice. The museum's six-acre campus was a large sand pile on the bank of the Mississippi River in Winona's busy commercial port. Now it's home to a six-gallery museum and education center, and they're delicately restoring a five-acre prairie garden. Learn more about exhibits and events at mmam.org. If you want to see more photos of the boathouses, go to backchannelradio.org. You can also support the project there and find us on Instagram at backchannelradio. Stay afloat. <laughs>